<sighs> the comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. This could be a hell of a bad two weeks. This is going to be a very bad two and maybe even three weeks. 30 days to slow the spread. 30 days to make a difference in the lives of the American people, American families, and the life of our nation. It's communities that will do this. There's no magic bullet. There's no magic vaccine or therapy. We're going to continue to see things go up. We cannot be discouraged by that. Andrew Cuomo today said that the system that we have where governors are trying to get ventilators, it's like being on eBay with 50 other states. The problem is with some people, no matter what you give, it's never enough. From CBS Audio, this is Debriefing the Briefing. Here's CBS News Chief Washington Correspondent Major Garrett. Hello from Washington and welcome to the very first episode of Debriefing the Briefing, where we will walk you through the highlights of the daily White House Coronavirus Task Force briefing. We will dig into some of the key statements made by President Trump and his advisors. We will do so with the help of my CBS News colleagues and at times outside experts. The briefing held March 31st in the White House briefing room lasted two hours and 11 minutes. It was by far the longest briefing held by the coronavirus task force. Three or four important news nuggets. The first and most important by far, an assessment based on modeling reviewed by the president's medical advisors that the country ought to brace itself for the possibility that 100,000 and possibly as many as 240,000 Americans could die of COVID-19. There was a discussion of cities that might soon become hotspots among the cities mentioned, Chicago, Detroit, Houston, Dallas, and Los Angeles. The president said he wants to be positive, but he was by far more somber and more constrained from that inclination toward positivity than he's ever been before. Let me bring in my CBS News White House correspondent colleague, Ben Tracy. Ben, let's you and I and the audience listen to the president describing the week's ahead. I want every American to be prepared for the hard days that lie ahead. We're going to go through a very tough two weeks. And then hopefully, as the experts are predicting, as I think a lot of us are predicting after having studied it so hard, you're going to start seeing some real light at the end of the tunnel. But this is going to be a very painful, very, very painful two weeks. President went on to say later in the briefing, a hell of a bad time ahead. Ben, what struck you about the president's demeanor? I just thought this was extraordinary. I thought the president was, for the most part, sober, straightforward. This briefing, most of it was data-driven, which is not something we've always seen from the podium there at the White House in the last couple of weeks. And you also saw a real personal side of this with the president. He spoke at length about what he saw on TV happening at Elmhurst Hospital in New York. He said, that's a hospital that I grew up just by there. He could identify with that, and I think that is something that has really changed his perspective on this issue, where he's taking it more seriously. He's not trying to spin it. He said, you know, at one point, as you mentioned, he said, I want to be positive. I'm not into bad news, but you just can't say anything good about numbers when you're talking about 100,000 to 240,000 Americans potentially dying. 
Now, Dr. Anthony Fauci came to the microphones and said he is hopeful, he has some hope that intense mitigation strategies, stay-at-home orders, and intense social distancing might create a scenario where these models and everyone who came to the microphones from Dr. Deborah Burks to Anthony Fauci said these are models, models are based on the assumptions that you put into the models at the forefront, Maybe the numbers will be lower, but it's worth pointing out, Ben, and this was a point emphasized by many reporters through their questions, that mitigation strategies carried out, as we currently understand them, still produce numbers of this magnitude. Exactly. And basically, they're saying the 100,000 number is if every American is doing everything they're supposed to do. And I think all of us in the last couple of days can just look out the windows from our homes or when we go to the grocery store and know that that's not the case. Just here in Washington, D.C. yesterday, I saw, you know, plenty groups of people out on the sidewalk hanging out talking. So we're not at that point yet where we are doing modeling the behavior that would lead to the low end of that spectrum. And there was also something noticeably missing from this briefing that I have seen and the American public has seen in a couple of the more previous briefings, that is to say, agitated exchanges with reporters about snarky questions or negative questions. The president uh, oftentimes said, that's a good question, that's an important question. And it appeared to me, Ben, and I've been around this president for a long time, as you have, that he wanted to take that particular part of previous briefings out of this one and maybe out of all ones going forward. We'll have to see. But that also struck me. Yeah, it struck me as well. It was remarkable change uh, in tone for the president. And to some of the questions where they were trying to get at, you know, if you had taken this more seriously earlier on, would we be at a different point here? He didn't even take the bait sometimes when in the past he would normally do that. He seemed to really want to keep this on a level of realizing that he is telling the American public right now that we are likely going to lose twice as many, at least twice as many Americans as we lost in Vietnam. That is a striking thing for an American president to get up behind a podium and have to tell the country. Ben, in addition to describing these numbers and how they are going to be seen by the country for one week, two weeks, three weeks, I mean, it seemed in, to me that there was a concerted effort, not only by the president, but by Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks, to say to the country, not only are these numbers real, but there's going to be a reaction. And it's going to be a reaction that might induce a sense of fear, but we have to stick with what we're doing. And what we're doing in terms of distancing and mitigation is the only real remedy in the immediate future to respond to this virus. Is that how you interpreted it as well? It is. And I think it's going to be really interesting to see how the American people respond, because as we all know, I think a lot of us have really struggled with the idea of largely being stuck inside our homes, of knowing this could go on for another month or so. But these numbers put this in perspective. If we're talking about losing 100,000 to 240,000 of our fellow Americans, the sacrifices we're currently making just seem like nothing. And so I do wonder if this is going to kind of change people's perspective on this. And this analogy that we've been talking about, about comparing this to a war, the president says the invisible enemy. I do think perhaps people are going to now take this much more seriously, because when you look at a number like that, you can't look at a number like that and say it's not going to be somebody I know. That's a lot of people. 
At one point, Dr. Deborah Burke said, describing the numbers as the stark reality of what this virus will do. That's a direct quote. Stark reality, I think, is among the many terms you could apply to the scenario that I think many in the country have wondered if was possible now through the microphone of the briefing room in the White House, the president and his top coronavirus task force advisors are announcing to the country is not just possible, but probable. Now, in addition to those statements, alarming as they were, there were there was a extensive dialogue about ventilators, about other therapeutics, and other things that the task force and the country is mobilizing to do that might shield the country for number from numbers of this magnitude. And I don't want to suggest that the president was unduly, or anyone on the task force at the microphones at this briefing was unduly positive, but they did say there's something in the data in California and Washington that offers at least some glimmers of hope. Uh, ben, could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, that, that's when they showed a graph at one point where they showed the line of New York and New Jersey, which go almost straight up. But then they showed California and Washington, which had cases very early on that could have had a similar trend line. But their line was much more horizontal. And that's what we call flattening the curve. It's trying to keep the number of cases from spiking too fast at any one time and getting out of control. That's what's happening in New York. So they're looking at that data and saying, how can we make sure that a place like Detroit is is more like Washington than New York. Um, and they they seem encouraged by that. And I think the thought is, if we can really get into this mitigation, this social distancing, make it work, and then also make the plans for where do you send ventilators when you start to see a place as a new hotspot? How do you react differently than we reacted in the beginning when we were just kind of in shock as to all of this happening so quickly? And on the ventilators, there's still quite a conversation about how governors can or cannot access the sufficient number of ventilators for their immediate, and this is important, Ben, and it came up a lot in the briefing, their perceived needs. And just as the federal government is modeling, governors with their advisors, they have their teams as well, they're also trying to model and trying to look at what they may have to prepare for. Describe a little bit about that conversation in the briefing. There still seems to be this disconnect between what we're hearing from governors in their states and first responders on the ground, people at hospitals, and what we're hearing from the White House in terms of how many ventilators have been sent out, protective equipment, all those sorts of things. Uh, This also relates to testing, where they're saying the tests have all been sent out. We're not sure why there's not as many tests taking place. So there is a disconnect there somewhere. But you heard today from the governor of New York basically saying, hey, these ventilators are very expensive. I'm not buying anything I don't think I actually need. So they are saying to the White House, listen, this isn't just about us stockpiling these in a warehouse somewhere. These are going to hospitals and we need them. Uh, One of the more striking parts of this briefing was you heard the president say there are 10,000 ventilators ready to go, but we're holding them back. And when asked why he would do that, he basically acknowledged that they need to have some on hand. So if we do have a real big problem in a Detroit, in a New Orleans, that they can then send those ventilators to those places. Stark numbers and what the models suggest and a stark reality that 
the federal government has to hold back ventilators. Ben Tracy, thank you very much. That's all for this episode of CBS Audio's Debriefing the Briefing. Don't forget to subscribe to my other podcast that's known as The Takeout, which might be how you found this particular podcast. We just released a new episode with the creator of The Wire. His name is David Simon, and we will continue to pump out new episodes while we are all practicing working at home, self-isolation, and all the things we need to to get on the other side of COVID-19. Until next time, I'm Major Garrett in Washington. If you like The Takeout, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Farian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them? and not the man pulling the strings. Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus. Some puzzles are hard to solve. Others are hard to prove. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Access episodes early and ad-free with 48 Hours Plus on Apple Podcasts.